You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Welcome to Prognosis. I'm Laura Carlson. It's day 196 since coronavirus was declared a global pandemic. Today's main story, we're now learning that having had COVID-19 doesn't mean you can't get it again. We'll discuss what that means for stopping the outbreak spread and for the development of a vaccine. But first, here's what happened in virus news today. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. COVID-19 could wipe out an estimated 500 million jobs globally. That's a bigger hit to the labor market than economists anticipated, according to the International Labor Organization. The ILO also predicts a much slower recovery at the end of this year. The ILO said that global working hours were 17% lower than the end of 2019, equivalent to almost 500 million jobs. That's up from 400 million projected in June. Johnson & Johnson has begun dosing up to 60,000 volunteers in a study of its COVID-19 vaccine. It's the first big U.S. trial of an inoculation that may only require one shot. J&J is the fourth vaccine maker to move its candidate into late-stage human studies in the U.S. If enrollment goes as expected, the trial could yield results as soon as the end of the year, allowing the company to seek emergency authorization early next year if it proves effective. Finally, 
The Trump administration has shifted billions of dollars away from public health programs for testing and mask funds into its Operation Warp Speed vaccine effort. It's a sign the U.S. government is increasing its focus on a medical solution to the pandemic. The transfers, disclosed in a government audit reported by Bloomberg News and described by congressional aides, have increased the budget of the Warp Speed program to as much as $18 billion, much larger than the $10 billion figure the administration has routinely cited in public. And now for today's main story. Scientists in Hong Kong reported last month what many had long suspected could happen. Someone who had recovered from COVID-19 caught the coronavirus again. Since then, about a dozen cases of reinfection have been reported worldwide. These cases demonstrate that a natural infection doesn't lead to lasting protection and that the pandemic could persist in the human population. Bloomberg News senior editor Jason Gale talked to health experts about what this means for our ability to stop the virus and to produce an effective immunization. Anecdotes of people being infected by the coronavirus twice have appeared in the media since at least February, but these cases weren't proven. To demonstrate reinfection, Scientists have to isolate the microbial culprit each time, check its genetic fingerprint, and show that each infection was caused by a different virus. Scientists in Hong Kong reported the first confirmed reinfection almost a month ago. I asked an infectious diseases physician who's worked on a lot of outbreaks how we should interpret that finding. I'm Dr. Tom Frieden, President and Chief Executive Officer of Resolved Save Lives, and former director of both the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and commissioner of the New York City Health Department. Well, first, we're continuing to learn more every day, but it's clear now that reinfection can happen. How often it happens and what the implications are for both natural infection and vaccine-induced immunity really are still unclear. Reinfections have now been confirmed in Asia, Europe and North and South America, but all up, these cases probably number less than a dozen, which is reassuring, right? Globally, we've certainly had more than 100 million infections now. If we haven't seen a lot of reinfection, it must be rare. Or you can say, you know, we're really not looking, and until we look, we're not going to find. Uh, I think most of us believe that there is some level of immunity for some period of time in some people. But those are very vague uh, qualifiers. Is some 10% or 80%? And really, until we get better data, we won't know. This first case, reported by doctors at the University of Hong Kong, occurred in a 33-year-old IT worker who had a mild case of COVID-19 in March. Last month, he was screened for the coronavirus at the airport after he returned from a work trip to Europe. The man didn't have any symptoms, so it was no doubt a surprise when the test came back positive. The fact that he was infected without symptoms suggested to some scientists that his memory immune response prevented any symptomatic disease. In other words, that natural infection protected him from getting the cough, sore throat, fever and headache he experienced four and a half months earlier, but it didn't prevent him being infected again. 
I asked Tom, is this what we might expect from a subsequent infection with the SARS-CoV-2 virus? Well, one theory is that you're not likely to get severe disease twice. There is a reported case of someone who had mild disease the first time and then moderately severe disease the second time, and someone else who had moderately severe disease the first time and mild disease the second time. And the theory here is that it's the more severe disease that's more likely to result in protective antibodies. We know that there are some people who have very mild disease who don't seem to mount an antibody response, and that may correlate with being able to get infected again. It also seems antibodies don't always stick around that long. Last Thursday, researchers at the Vanderbilt University Medical Center published a study in which they found more than half of the healthcare workers who'd been infected with SARS-CoV-2 and had detectable antibodies in early April didn't have detectable antibodies two months later. The researchers said they didn't know whether the decline in antibodies increases risk of reinfection and disease. It's at least helping us understand what the limitations of immunity against COVID-19 might be. I think it's unlikely that immunity to COVID is going to be as dramatically effective as, say, immunity to measles is. If you get measles naturally once in your life, you will in all likelihood never get it again. Uh, In contrast, if you get influenza or malaria or lots of other conditions, uh, you may get them again, but perhaps less seriously. We really don't know at this point enough about COVID, but what has emerged is that um, certain antibodies, known as neutralizing antibodies, do appear uh, that they may be protective, and that's why we're hopeful that vaccination may be possible. But until that's proven, uh, that's just a theory. There's a possibility that immune protection against the coronavirus might be cumulative. The more times our immune system sees the virus, the better and faster it could be at thwarting it. Tom says we don't know that for sure, though. Well, there's something called an anamnastic response, where when someone is exposed again and again to a pathogen, it strengthens their immune system. That's one theory. But we really don't know what the reality is with COVID. What we do know is that there's a wide variety of illness. Some people get infected and it's quite mild. Other people get infected and they can get severely ill or die. And we're not sure what the difference is. One of the key questions around reinfection is whether someone who has caught the virus again is capable of transmitting it. Tom pointed to one example that indicated someone could be infectious and another example that suggested they might not be. At this point, um, there are theories, but no proof. For example, someone who's had a mild infection before and has very little immunity may behave just the same as someone who is infected for the first time. In contrast, someone who was very ill and has a high level of neutralizing antibody may indeed reduce their viral load and be less infectious. It's something that we need to figure out. So what do these reinfections mean for our ability to reach herd immunity, where the virus's potential to spread is mitigated by a high level of immune protection in the community? All bets are off still. Um, The likelihood is that herd immunity is going to involve uh, well over half of the population getting infected, uh, but there are still many unknowns. And 
one thing that's important to keep in mind is that herd immunity is not a dichotomy. It's not herd immunity on off. The more people who are immune in a community, the slower the virus spreads. What is certainly the case is that in all likelihood, getting to herd immunity for COVID in the US would require an infection rate of something like 60%. Currently, we're at about 15%. We have 200,000 deaths. So in all likelihood, getting to herd immunity in the US would involve another 600,000 deaths. We're talking about more than uh, almost any war in US history. Where does all this leave vaccines for COVID? Dr. Chip Schooley, a professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases at UC San Diego School of Medicine, says we have to be careful about going down the AIDS vaccine hole. As you remember, we were going to have an AIDS vaccine in 1986. <laughs> and we never got one, but we've done pretty well with AIDS. And we did it uh, with drugs and we did it with behavioral changes. And we may be in the same boat with, uh, with COVID. Yeah, I mean, these reinfections uh, have to give you uh, pause about thinking that you can do better with a vaccine than you can do with natural infection. Chip says previous research with vaccines suggests that the immunity isn't long and it may not be the silver bullet many of us, me included, are hoping it will be. That's why I think it's important to um, try to um, optimize non-vaccine interventions um, and get back to business. I think we really have to get on with it about how to operate in the, in the COVID era where the virus is kind of going to be looking over our shoulder for a while to come. There's so much we don't know about the coronavirus, including our ability to produce a safe, effective and durable immune response with a vaccine. But there are things we do know we can do to stop the pandemic. While we push ahead with developing vaccines, we also have to develop better treatments and keep practicing physical distancing, hand washing, mask wearing, and everything else we can to prevent infections. That was Jason Gale. And that's it for our show today. For coverage of the outbreak from 120 beers around the world, visit Bloomberg.com coronavirus. And if you like the show, please leave us a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It's the best way to help more listeners find our global reporting. The Prognosis Daily Edition is produced by Topher Forges, Jordan Gaspure, Magnus Henriksen, and me, Laura Carlson. Today's main story was reported by Jason Gale. Original music by Leo Sidrin. Our editors are Rick Schein and Francesca Levy. Francesca Levy is Bloomberg's head of podcasts. Thanks for listening.
From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.